Hey, buddy. Ready? Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. We're glad that you uh, found us in the cold today. <clears throat> oh, as far as announcements go, today is our fellowship lunch. That's exciting. We're going to have a fun snow day together and eat fried chicken. So please stay for that if you are able to. We would enjoy that to have some fun and fellowship. That'll be right after service. Um, Mark on your calendars for January 17th. That will be our prayer meeting at 6 p.m. And it's usually at the Olivers. So if you need to find where that's at, let us know. January 21st, we'll have morning catechism at 9. And then uh, we have an evening worship on January 28th. I think that's it as far as announcements go. Each week, we take just a few moments to prepare our hearts for our time of worship together. So join me in that. stand and join me in this call of worship. Each week we have a call of worship and this is God calling us to worship him. It's uh, found from Psalm 110. I'll read the bold. Please read the non-bold. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Please remain standing and you can turn to hymn number 57. We will sing praise to the Lord Almighty. the 
come to our reading of the law, found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 21. This is actually the tenth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So we see in this command that we are commanded not to covet and part of that also is, you know, being content with what God has given us. Being content with the, the lot that God has given us in life, you know. It's obvious in life that God grants some people more than others, but we should be content. And I was looking at our Baptist uh, catechism book, and it actually went as far to say that we should even be at peace with our neighbors and be at peace with what they have. You know, like we shouldn't be bitter towards our neighbor if they have a nicer car or a bigger house, you know, which that's probably only problems for us in America, but not exactly. But you, you get the point that I'm making, and it's just obvious in the, the text of the Scripture. We, we, we shall not covet, and we need to be content with what God has given us. And this is hard, and it's something that sometimes we may all fall into. And so... Each week when we look at the law and look at the commands of God, we ask that God would give us strength not to sin against Him, that God would give us strength not to sin against our neighbor, because um, upholding these commandments is only something that we can do by God's grace and by God's power. So we cannot do it within ourselves. Would you please turn to <coughs> hymn number 246. We will sing, Be Thou My Vision.
thou my wisdom, be thou my true word, be thou ever with me, and I with thee, Lord. Be thou my great Father, and I thy true Son. family. It's so good to see you all here. You never really know on whether days like today. I love this in Romans 3. Before I get into it, what I love about this is that it puts every one of us on the same playing field. Every one of us, Jews, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Every one of us has not measured up to God's righteousness. I don't care how moral you are. I'll guarantee you there's Mormons who are more moral than I am. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but you know what I'm saying. Moral is not righteous. And Christianity is not just about being a moral person. It's about measuring up to God's righteousness, which we cannot do, none of us, without God's grace given to us. So in uh, 
in Romans 5. Is that right? Romans 3. Excuse me. Romans 3, 10 through 20. I'm going to start at verse 9 just to kind of keep it in perspective here a little bit. It reads this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, which is another term for Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, and he quotes from the Psalms, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I think he's making this point. (laughs) There's not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. Would you all join with me on this, uh, this prayer of confession on the next page, please? Heavenly Father, author of life itself, The whole earth is filled with your glory. But ever since the fall, we, along with all of creation, wait to be freed from the bondage of sin. We confess our selfish desires, and our grievous passions distract us from giving you the worship you alone deserve. Our only hope is in your forgiveness found in the sacrificial blood of Jesus our Lord. We trust your Holy Spirit to guide, help, and teach us to bring honor to you. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now in your handouts, we have the uh, In Christ Alone should be the separate sheet.
Jesus commands my destiny, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll seated. Would you please bow your heads with me in prayer, Lord God. Lord God in heaven above, Lord, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you that you helped us all get here safely this morning in this cold weather, Lord. God, we thank you for the great gospel that you purchased for us in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. God, I just want to lift up our church to you right now, Lord God, and be with those who weren't able to make it to worship today, God, because of uh, illness and sickness and many other things, Lord. We ask that you would be with them and that you would comfort them today, Lord God. Strengthen them by the, the power of your spirit, Lord. Lord God, I ask that you would uh, just bless our worship service today, Lord God. We're so thankful for everything you've done in each one of our lives, God, how you've provided for us, how we have life and breath, God. We're so thankful for you and what you've done for us, God. We ask that you would fill our hearts with true worship, God, worship that only you can strengthen us to give you, Lord God, that we would worship you in spirit and truth today, Lord. God, we ask that you would 
Bless our time of fellowship today and strengthen us, God, by your word. Lord God, uh, we also want to lift up to you um, our church plant from up north, Lord God, Shepherd uh, Reformed Baptist Church. Lord, we ask that you be with them today as they meet and gather, God, that you would be with Luke and Mario, that you would be with them and their families, God, that you would give them strength to continue the work that you have started up there, that people would be strengthened in their faith and that people would even come to faith, God, through this work that you have started, Lord. And God, we just thank you for your many blessings, Lord, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Our assurance of pardon is taken in from uh, Romans 5, 6 through 11. And it's an answer, really, to the confession of sin that we, we just read about earlier, where none of us are righteous. None of us measure up. Well, if we left it at that, there wouldn't be much hope in there. Where would, would there? If, if we're just told that we're, we're sinners and every one of us are and just left at that, it would be a sad state of affairs. But Paul goes on in five and he tells us in assurance of pardon, starting in verse six of, of chapter five. This is the hope that we have. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That'd be you and me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the faith, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now that's hope. That's hope that we have. We have been reconciled through Jesus. In our confession of faith this morning, <coughs> excuse me, it's taken from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith at 8.1, under Christ the Mediator. If you would all read along with me, please. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them, to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. <clears throat> 
Amen. Good morning again. If you have a Bible, uh, open it to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I think we have some on the back table. So, so good to be together today. Today we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. And today we're in chapter 7, which is exciting because it's an important chapter. It's um, the heading title for this chapter is called The Priestly Order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek has been mentioned already a few times <clears throat> earlier in earlier chapters of Hebrews in now, the writer of Hebrews is going to explain who this Melchizedek is and how he's significant and why he's significant. So, I'm going to start actually in Hebrews um, chapter 6, verses 19. We're going to read a short portion and then we are going to start... And see how far we make it. <laughs> it's a long chapter. So I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is true. And God, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would help us to greater understand your word, that we'd be strengthened by your word, and that we would have a greater faith in the work that you have done for us, Lord God. And we ask these things... In Jesus' name, amen. So, just to backtrack a little bit, throughout the book of Hebrews, we have seen that the point that the writer of the Hebrews is making to the Hebrews, to the, the, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're making, he's making the point that Jesus is greater than anyone and everyone else. And specifically, he's greater than all of the Old Covenant saints, Moses, Abraham. Um, today we're going to see how Jesus is greater than Abraham and how Jesus is greater. The priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of the Old Covenant, which would have been the Levitical priesthood. It's pretty awesome. 
And we saw earlier in, in the Hebrews where Jesus is greater than angels. So it's, crystal, it's going to be crystal clear that Jesus is greater than anyone. And to be even more specific, Jesus is the only one who can give us grace. Your, your dead relatives can't give you grace. Your ancestors can't give you grace. Other religions teach that they can receive grace from all kinds of weird things. Praying to dead saints. I always think of the Catholic Church because they just they believe that you can receive grace from other things, from other people, from other sources. And they have earthly priests. That's going to be one of the big things we're going to see today. And it's so awesome. But we're, it's one of my favorite parts of probably the whole book of Hebrews is how it's going to make the point how like the heavenly is greater than the earthly. So what Christ has done for us, the victory he has won for us, how he finished it. The Bible says he finished the work. He completed it, and he's seating at the right hand of the Father. That's where he's seated. It's finished. So as cool and mysterious and mystical and magical things on earth could seem, maybe even like a religious service. I always think of the Roman Catholic Church just because they do so many things. Incense, I mean... Many things, the priests come out in the robes, like, and other religions do the same thing too, but like, you just see this form, this earthly picture of like holiness. And I imagine if, if I was in a service like that, I mean, I'm a, a, a human being, my flesh would, I'd probably feel special if somebody, you know, anointed me with oil. I mean, just, you could go on and on. You could do tons of research of what all kinds of different religions do. To, to gain grace. And what's so awesome is we're going to see that what Jesus has done is all we need. And we should not be tempted to look to any of these other earthly things to receive grace. Uh, but So yeah, that's, I just wanted to give kind of the overview as we, as we go into this chapter. And we just read in chapter 6 that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'm also excited about this chapter because... I grew up in the charismatic Pentecostal church and I don't know, they just make things more weird than they should sometimes. And a lot of people want to make this Melchizedek thing just, I don't know, kind of weird. And then I got to reading the chapter and it's very simple. We don't have to be confused. So I'm very excited about that. I mean, he's just going to tell us so clearly how Christ and Melchizedek, like he's going to clear it up and, and, and the point's going to be so clear. So we're going to go back to chapter 7, verse 1. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we're going to pause there. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And we're going to see later that whoever is greater always gives the blessing and whoever is lesser receives the blessing. So this Melchizedek was greater than, than Abraham. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. You also would tithe or give to someone greater than you. And Abraham gave to Melchizedek. And this is a real story in the Bible. Melchizedek appears in Genesis chapter 14. You can, you can go there and see the story. It's a very short story. Um, and this would also would have been significant because the writer of the Hebrews, I mean, in that time, you know, a lot of those people, if you didn't, come to faith in Christ, they would have been holding on to the, the Jewish faith, you know. 
So they would have been looking. A lot of them may have had a very, you know, I don't know, high view of Abraham. So this is significant that the writer of Hebrews is telling us that, no, Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than all of the fathers of the Old Testament, you know, the fathers of the faith, whatever you want to call it. And so this would have been significant to them. Wow, Jesus is greater than Abraham. Abraham even paid tithes to this Melchizedek. This Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So this Melchizedek is greater. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, and that is king of peace. So is Christ. Christ is the king of righteousness. Christ is the king of peace. So even his name points to Christ. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And there's one of the key points. It's so clear. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He is not the Son of God. MacArthur has a pretty good note on this. The implication is that the resemblance to Christ rests upon the way Melchizedek's history is reported in the Old Testament. So if you look at the history, when the story happened in Genesis 14, there's no record of where Melchizedek came from. So the writer's saying, Melchizedek, is he like eternal? But he doesn't really mean Melchizedek himself is eternal. He's, he's pointing to Christ, how Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a real person in the Old Testament, and you can, you can see that. He's a real person. He, he died just like you, just like me. Um, and this is also interesting because this isn't the only like type and shadow. In the Old Testament, there's so many types and shadows that point to, to Christ, that point to the substance, to, to the real thing. That's another key point we're going to see in the scriptures today is the, the real thing is always greater than like the shadow or the anti-type. And Jesus is the real thing. And I want to just reference a couple of those, a couple of the, those different types. I mean, you could look and Google search it if you want, but there are so many types and shadows in the Old Testament that point to Christ. And I just want to reference two. Even Jesus, these are the two of the ones that even Jesus referenced. Um, in Numbers 21, the serpent in the wilderness, if you remember the story with Moses. Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, they would look at this bronze serpent and they would live. And Jesus said in John chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So we see a picture of what was to come in the Old Testament. Moses lifted up the serpent. Well, the serpent's not... I mean, that's the story points to Christ. We can't stay back there. We've got to look to what it's pointing to. It was pointing to Christ. And even Jesus himself referenced that he is the fulfillment of what that was. We are sinners, and what do we do? We look to Christ. We look to Christ who was lifted up. And now we're saved and we're forgiven. Jesus also referenced another one in John, or not in John, sorry, in Matthew 12, the, the sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days in the fish. And Jesus even referenced him. He said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was Matthew 12, verse 40. And Jesus referenced that. So we see that this idea of types and shadows in the Old Testament of our Bible 
It's, it's everywhere. It's so common. Um, and so, yes, it, it's, it's pointing to Christ. Now we're, we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So that's what we already talked about. The inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. In the uh, verse eight, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now this is. This is pretty big as well. So we're talking about the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews is showing us that even Levi himself paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. Like, you can't make this stuff up. Like, I didn't make it up. It's exactly what it says. So even the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical system, Levi himself paid tithes to Melchizedek. So this priestly order of Melchizedek is without question greater than the old covenant priesthood. And we know that it's pointing to Christ because Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? That means Jesus is the ultimate high priest ordained by God, which that was in our liturgy, which was awesome. So we already read it in our liturgy, but that's what it's saying. Like this chapter isn't about this Melchizedek guy. It's about who the Melchizedek guy points to. And that is, is Christ. I thought that was so big. And that would have been so significant to the Hebrews in the time of Christ. Like, you know, do you want to get persecuted and get kicked out of the temple and lose your whole life and give up everything to serve Christ? Or do you just want to conform and continue being Jewish and keep saying, no, this Christ dude's a nobody and we believe Abraham and we believe Moses. This would have been so significant at that time. Because the writer of the Hebrews is telling them, no, 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 no. This Christ that has come is greater than the Levitical system. He's greater than Levi. MacArthur has another awesome note on this. This is proof that the Mosaic law had been abrogated. The Levitical system was replaced by a new priest, offering a new sacrifice under a new covenant. He abrogated the law by fulfilling it and providing the perfection that the law could never accomplish. And I also just want to make it clear, like we're not, we're not at all saying that the Old Covenant or the Old Testament um, is insignificant or that it doesn't mean anything. We're not saying that at all. We're actually saying that it's amazing that it all connects together. We're, we're saying praise God for the Old Testament. We're seeing what it's pointing to because in the Reformed world, we, we could, people could, you know, they could come at us and be like, well, you guys, you know, I had one guy tell me one time, you know, you're just like a new covenant guy. I'm like, what in the world? Like, 
aren't we all in the new covenant in Christ? Like, of course I'm a new covenant guy. I don't want to be in the old covenant because if I'm in the old covenant today, I would be condemned because Christ has already come. Like, so, but yeah. So then that's been so amazing for me is to listen to all these reformed preachers and teachers is, is to see how well they point to Christ from the Old Testament. It has cleared so many things up in my own mind, in my own theology. The Old Testament isn't a mystery anymore because it all points to Christ, to the fulfillment. And Jesus even said that he didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus himself said he came to fulfill the law. So Jesus himself didn't throw it away. He upholds it. So to truly obey the law would be to see Christ and would be to obey Christ, which is what we see in the New Testament that all of humanity is commanded to look to Christ. And we are all commanded to look to Christ. Um, that was in our liturgy too, in that confession of sin, when Daryl was talking about how all have sinned. It's just an interesting note. I'm pretty sure it's Hebrews chapter 3 where Paul also says, um, are we Jews any better off? And he says, no. There's, there's only like two groups of people. You're, you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You know, even the Jews, even the Jews today, they're not, there's not like a third party. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. Verse 11. We're going to continue verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So, man, this, this is so good. He's just going to keep hammering it home. If perfection was attainable in the Levitical priesthood, then why would a second priesthood have come? Rather than one named after the order of Aaron, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus didn't become a priest by bodily descent, like a priest in the Old Covenant would have, you know. I was born into the family of Levi, so my dad was a priest. Now I'm priest. No, Jesus was a priest because God chose him and ordained him by the power of an indestructible life. MacArthur had another good note on that. He said, because he is the eternal second person of the Godhead, Christ's priesthood cannot end. He obtained his priesthood not by virtue of the law, but by virtue of his deity. That's good. For it is witnessed of him, is witnessed of Jesus. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is another one of our main points for today is just praise God that he gave us what we needed. We 
needed a high priest that could actually save us. And that was Christ. His once for all sacrifice paid for all of it. And it says a better hope is introduced, which is Christ, through which we draw near to God. We now draw near to God through Christ, not through the old covenant. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay. I just don't want to keep hammering that home. But it's like, I don't know how people miss it. We have to look at the whole Bible. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. If a better covenant has come and this better covenant was ordained by God himself, that's where I want to be. Because it's the only way to receive forgiveness. And it's the only way to be right with God. And so many other scriptures in the New Testament tell us the same thing, which is amazing because the Bible connects so perfectly. We're commanded the only way to be made right right with God is through Christ. No other religion can save. No other, no one can save you. Only Jesus. Only coming to faith in Christ can save you. And that's another point is we need the same thing that the Hebrews needed. The same thing that even the Jewish people today need is they need eyes of faith to see Christ. And that's the same thing we need. And, you know, obviously if, if, if you're a Christian, you know, if I'm a Christian and we've truly been born again, we know God's given us that gift. He's given us the gift of faith to see Christ. And, you know, I just pray that for those of us who are already saved, that God would just increase our faith and increase our knowledge of God, that we would continue to see Christ clearly. But, and that could be, you know, our prayer for our friends and our family and for those who don't know Christ, that, that they would see Christ. Verse 23 of chapter 7. The former priests, <laughs> it's going to get better. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So let this sink in. Um, the former priests died because they were men like us. You know, Jesus is God. <laughs> His priesthood is eternal. He goes on forever. Why you would want to go to somebody who's going to die, who really can't save you, it just doesn't make any sense. And he's making the case how, you know, this new priest in Christ is better. The old priests, they were prevented from continuing forever because they died. They were humans like us. But he, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you. Jesus always lives to be there to to pardon your sins if you're looking to him by faith. This is, whoo, this is about to blow up. Sorry, (laughs) verse 26, it gets good. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest who was holy and innocent unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I put in my little notes here, I said, no man ever. No man ever. There's never been a man who was holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners. And we know that Jesus, he wasn't even born like we were. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't even born like we were. 
He was set apart even from his birth, but he was still a man. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's the mystery of the Trinity. It's the mystery of the incarnation. It's, you can't wrap your mind around it. But he, he wasn't even born the way we were born. Because the point we're making is, the point the Bible makes, that Jesus was not born into sin. Every human has been born into sin and needs a Savior. Jesus wasn't. He's our perfect high priest. Praise God that he provided a priest that could actually save us. Yep, it's, it's continued. It's, it's all here. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, because he never sinned. And then those for the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. He did it once for all. Hear the language? Once for all. He did it once. His sacrifice was sufficient. He did it one time. Praise God that we're not still in the Old Testament. That would be, oh, I would just be exhausted to wake up every day and have to chop up a lamb and get all bloody and go to sleep and have to wake up another day and chop up another lamb. And then, you know, oh, I sinned again. I can't even go and be with the, the people, you know. If you were dirty, you couldn't even go into the temple. Like, man, it sounds terrible. It sounds exhausting. Like, praise the Lord for this new covenant in Christ. We're kind of spoiled. All you got to do is have faith in Christ. Man, it's so, it's so simple. It's so amazing. For the law appoints men in their weakness. And that's another common theme here. The law appoints men in their weakness. Men are weak. The law appointed men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Praise God. And this being made perfect doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect. If you were here for our early, earlier studies in Hebrews, we saw how Christ was made perfect through his suffering. And all the commentators were talking about how he suffered perfectly for us. And he obeyed God perfectly for us. That's how he was made perfect. It wasn't like a being made perfect of. He wasn't. Like, it wasn't a being made perfect of. He was sinful, and then now he's not sinful. Like, no, he's perfect. We're going to jump into chapter 8 because it's just, it's going to close. Now, the point in what we are saying is, so everything we just learned about Melchizedek, everything we just heard, we just read the whole chapter. How cool is that? We just went through a whole chapter as a church together. It's like a Bible study. We just went through the whole chapter 7. Now, the point in what we are saying, how could we not go into chapter 8? Because this is what it says. The point in what we're saying, all of that was for what? We have... 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We're, we're just, we're going to end there. It's so tempting to keep going because one of my favorite parts um, that we're going to see in chapters uh, 8 and 9 is, is it's going to be like uh, the heaven versus like the earthly. He goes into detail about where Christ serves. He served in the heavens. Like he, he served in the, in the real temple. Like you can't even go there if you wanted to. And the earthly people served in the copies and the shadows. And that's even what it says right here in verse 5. It says they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But... And the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a great high priest. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent. That's, that's cool. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That could have been your job in the Old Testament. Maybe you were like the pole guy, you know. I'm, gonna, I'm the pole guy to make the temple, the tent, you know. 
they'd move around, all that stuff, the presence. And the presence was really there. Like, we're not saying that the presence wasn't there. It was, a, it was an amazing thing that God set up. We just now are in the fulfillment, which is, which is cool, even better. We're, yeah, so yeah, you can see that what Jesus did is just, it's so much better. He serves in the true tent that the Lord set up. He, he serves in heaven. Like, it's just, it's mind-blowing. What Christ has done is just so much greater than anyone could ever do. Amen to that. We're going to end with just a couple simple notes that I just want to make sure I didn't miss. So, what the Hebrews need is what we all need, and that is eyes of faith to see the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law. We need eyes of faith to believe in the gospel that God has provided. God's the one who provided this great gospel in his own son. Praise God that he gave us a high priest greater than the men of the old covenant. Praise God that he gave us what we needed. A high priest who could enter into the heavens and forgive us of our sins once and for all. But then lastly, I'm just going to read a Matthew Henry quote because he kind of sums it all up so perfectly and then we can close. Matthew Henry, the mediator should be God since no mere creature is of himself possessed of that impeccability which will set him above all possible need of favor and mercy for himself. So the mediator that we needed should be God because there's no one who doesn't need mercy. There's no created being that doesn't need God's grace and mercy. And now he's going to talk about this new priesthood in Christ. There is a change in the efficacy of the priesthood. The former was weak and unprofitable. It made nothing perfect, but the latter brought in a better hope by which we draw near to God. The Levitical priesthood brought nothing to perfection. It could not justify men's persons from guilt. It could not sanctify them from inward pollution. It could not cleanse the conscience of the worshipers from dead works. All it could do was lead them to the anti-type. Let's point them to Christ. But the priesthood of Christ carries in it and brings along with it a better hope. It shows us the true foundation of all the hope we have towards God for pardon and salvation. It more clearly discovers the great objects of our hope. And so it tends to work in us a more strong and lively hope of acceptance with God. I really liked that. This new work that Christ has done works in us a more strong and lively hope of acceptance with God. We can have even more of an assurance of our salvation. We can be at more peace with God through the work of Christ. Praise God for that. By this hope, we are encouraged. By this hope, we are encouraged to draw nigh to God, to draw near to God, to enter into a covenant union with Him, to live a life of converse and communion with Him. We may now draw near with a true heart and with the full assurance of faith, having our minds sprinkled from an evil conscience. The former priesthood rather kept men at a distance and under a spirit of bondage. Praise God for giving us his son, our prophet, priest, and king. And he is greater than all. And praise God for his word. So we will close in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you so much for saving us. Thank you for salvation, for this great gift 
that we couldn't purchase in our own strength. Lord, we thank you for how amazing your son Jesus is. Lord, we ask that you would be with us the rest of this day and bless our time of fellowship. And we ask all these things in your name we pray. Amen. We will now sing Amazing Grace. So you can turn in your hymnal to number uh, 211 and we will sing about this amazing grace.